Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Our first interview today is with Ryan Kahlo at the University of Washington School of Law. I spoke to Ryan shortly after the European Commission announced new proposed regulations on artificial intelligence early this week. The second half of the podcast is a conversation with Kate Starbird, also of the University of Washington, and Renee DeResta from the Stanford Internet Observatory. The two were part of a unique collaboration to address disinformation in the 2020 U.S. election cycle. First up, let's talk artificial intelligence and regulation with Ryan Kahlo. Professor Kahlo is a founding director of the Interdisciplinary UW Tech Policy Lab and the UW Center for an Informed Public. Business Insider called him one of the most influential people in robotics. He serves on numerous advisory boards and steering committees, including the University of California's People and Robots Initiative, the AI Now Initiative at NYU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and the Future of Privacy Forum. Here's Ryan. So my name is uh, Ryan Kahlo, and I am a professor of law at the University of Washington. Um, I also hold courtesy appointments in computer science and information science. So the European Union, the European Commission, has today released a proposed regulation around artificial intelligence. Um, And this is obviously something that you have been prepared for and waiting to see happen. Um, What did the EU put out? Well, indeed. I mean, years ago, uh, I wrote a a kind of primer and roadmap for artificial intelligence policy and also hosted the inaugural uh, Obama White House workshop on um, artificial intelligence policy. And many of the themes of that essay of mine and of the workshop were reflected in the EU proposal, which is to say that they're not limiting themselves to decision-making by AI. They're not limiting themselves to privacy. They're not, you know, their approach is to, is to look at the impacts of AI holistically and to tackle everything from liability, should there be harm, to additional obligations for high-risk uses, uh, to uh, facial recognition and biometrics. They're really, they're really trying to look at this holistically. We, 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 in the United States, we would call this an omnibus approach. And it is pretty typical of the way that Europe, Europe has engaged with emerging technology, whether it be privacy and, 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 and data protection in the past, that that's their comfort level. You know, they, they, they think about something for a long time and then they, <laughs> they promulgate a, a comprehensive approach to regulation. So this will take a couple of years now to wind through the process in the EU. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to, to look at what they proposed as this sort of three categories of things that are unacceptable uh, applications or outcomes of the use of AI, the sort of mid-tier of potentially harmful or uh, high, highly harmful, um, and then the kind of, you know, mid to low uh, tier of things. How do you think they're kind of defining the risk factor and what, what goes into that? Well, it's, it's interesting. So in, in, in U.S. law, especially in, in the common law courts tradition, right, there is a big difference between when if there's a big difference when, when bones or bits are on the line, right? We, we, we tend to think in the United States that if there's a potential for a physical harm, that's going to be treated very, very differently than if the, if the harm is more ephemeral and more, um, you know, more, more, more digital. It's very difficult to avoid liability when bones are on the line and relatively easy when, when bits are. Whereas the European approach expressly prohibits a number of, a number of digital harms, right? Overtly digital harms. In fact, that is precisely what, what, what they're putting into that category that's such a high risk that you can't do it, right? And that's really fascinating to me. And so those are things like manipulating people based on their vulnerabilities um, or engaging in indiscriminate surveillance or, 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 or using a kind of um, 
general purpose scoring system like China has been reported to use and so on. But the, but the regs do not touch military use of AI to kill people, right? And so it's, it's so interesting, right? And then if you go down to high risk systems, now all of a sudden it's a mixture of physical infrastructure, the capacity to, 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 to do serious violence to, to infrastructure, the capacity to hurt people physically, and uh, a bunch of other things that are about, you know, biometric identification and the like. And then, you know, that section introduces the concept of having a, a, an artificial in, intelligence board that would be, you know, pardon the pun, a sounding board for, for, for folks trying to do risk assessment. Um, so, so you have like stuff you can't do, which is digital harms, interestingly, right? Fundamental rights, digital harms, stuff that when you do it, you need to be particularly mindful and seemingly, you know, get feedback <laughs> from, from the European regulatory uh, apparatus. Um, and then there's everything else. And there's a bunch of, of requirements around everything else having to do with risk assessment and document keeping and so on. So as you can see, it is, it is a taxonomy that makes a certain amount of internal, has a certain internal logic, but it does not graft on neatly to the way that the American legal system works. And so I see also that there are these transparency obligations around data, uh, around systems that interact with people uh, or that detect emotions or, or interpret uh, social categories. And Kate Crawford pointed out these interesting obligations around things that generate or manipulate content. So maybe deep fakes or, or, or other generative content mechanisms maybe even voice assistance, things like that would have to be transparently identified as, as artificial intelligence systems. What, what else is in here with regard to kind of transparency or things that caught your eye on that, on that front? What will the consumer know if this goes into effect about the systems they're encountering? Yeah, so remember that, that already in the GDPR, there are any number of transparency requirements, as are also there are requirements um, that a human being participate in decision-making under some circumstances, right? So in that way, it's not a significant departure. What I like about the approach is that it seems, it seems to reflect a lot of the thinking that the European and American and presumably other jurisdictions, AI ethics and, and responsibility community have been saying. So for example, there's an attention to the data itself that trains the models. So you have to have quality control, you have to have to, to be mindful of the data that you use to train your models, right? Uh, and that helps to address some of the garbage in, garbage out sort of ideas. Uh, but it's also really, really important to mitigating bias uh, because, and, and, and you know, Kate, you mentioned Kate Crawford, her, her book, um, Atlas of AI, has a number of really good examples tending to show the way in which the availability of data, um, the, the sheer, the sheer of ability, because once upon a time, access to data was, was harder, right? That many of our benchmarks and many of the data sets, data sets that our models are trained upon were what were available at the time and that they reflected tremendously problematic, <laughs> you know, uh, aspects of society, whether they be the Enron emails, or they be mugshots, or they, you know, you, you, you name it. And so part of what's being said here is you need to be mindful of the data that you're using and, and how it affects the outcome. Also, there's attention to what I have called in my own work, um, the emergent properties of AI, where there could be a risk that's difficult to anticipate. And so it requires some foreseeability exercises to anticipate what the risks are. Then there is documenting what you're doing and, and what the data sources are and how your algorithm works and so on. And then you asked about transparency specifically to uh, users. And so, yeah, and so, and so there, and so there you, you see a typical kind of transparency regime wherein high-risk systems have to be accompanied with documentation and instructions of use in an accessible format that's easy to read and relevant and accessible. But these are, these are all principles that are well understood in European and to some extent American law because of the GDPR. Then you have ideas about uh, human oversight where somebody in the system somewhere <laughs> can, can uh, understand and affect 
how the processes work. And you know, my own recent uh, research with Danielle Citron has emphasized the degree to which especially public actors using AI decision-making systems will, or, or algorithmic systems, will outsource tasks that the agency used to do. And by doing so, lose the knowledge of how, the, of how anything works. And so they're, they're kind of throwing away their expertise with both hands by automating. And I think that to some extent, the European regulations are being responsive to that concern. There, you mentioned the, the fact that this does not create many or any uh, restraints on military applications of artificial intelligence. Um, others have pointed out that it seems to go soft on uh, some of the worst case uh, surveillance uh, or, or use by law enforcement applications. Um, what do you think about that? A curiosity about European data protection law that carries over into this context of regulating AI more broadly is that the fear seems to be more private actors <laughs> than public, which I have trouble explaining, you know, because the, because the standard narrative about why the EU is so much more solicitous of privacy interests, you know, so much more privacy focused is because it has more immediate experiences with tyrannical surveillance. But of course, if what we're talking about is Stalin or Hitler or, you know, we're talking about the state. We're not talking about private entities. And yet that fear about fundamental rights and privacy has led to the generation of rules that primarily affect private conduct. Now, again, it is truly omnibus. And so, did, so, so there, there are, of course, European laws that uh, limit the state. I don't mean to suggest that they're not, but the focus the focus tends to be on what private people are doing. However, you know, in this particular measure, you do see certain attention being paid to indiscriminate surveillance, and they don't they don't um, exempt the state, right? A lot of them. So, for example, um, the, the scope of the of the rules applies to providers of AI, you know what I mean, and users of AI, but it also applies to EU institutions, offices, bodies, and agencies. The, the issue is that there has been a practice among some of the member states in, in Europe. Remember the system, right, where it works is there's EU-wide legislation, but then the member states have to um, enact it. And in some member states have enacted it less aggressively and have exempted certain of the, of the um, state's own practices, right? So we, we have to see whether or not in the end public, you know, whether state use of AI is much affected by this regulation. So I, I, I don't know that I'm, I'm ready to be critical at this time, but it does, it does seem to create room for state use of AI and be, and be primarily interested in regulating the Googles and the Facebooks and the, and, you know what I mean? Like that's, that, that, that seems to be the focus, but that would, but that would be consistent with its regulatory approach to date with data protection. Some of the coverage has suggested that this is going to put a lot of onerous restraint on the private sector in the EU and that it's, it's likely going to kill innovation for startups working with artificial intelligence. Um, I've read articles in uh, the Wall Street Journal and in Fortune that have uh, had voices suggesting those things. Um, do you believe any of that's true? I think that if the question is, is how will industry fare with with a set of knowable, consistent rules, you know what I mean? Then the picture is gonna be at, a, at least mixed. That is, they're gonna benefit tremendously from knowing what is okay and what isn't, and not, in, not making massive investments in things that are not gonna be allowed, and, and, and knowing how much accountability to build into their systems, right? If anything, you sort of worry about a kind of compliance culture that develops around this, right? Where if anything is not specifically obligated, then they, then they, that's their wiggle room, right? There, there, there may be um, situations where in a compliance heavy environment, new entrants often face obstacles for the obvious reason that they don't have the, the time or the people or the expertise or the money to comply. And so some combination of those two things, the benefits that come from certainty and knowing what the, what the rules of the road are, coupled with the advantage that that bakes into legacy 
companies, companies that are already in the market and already mature, helps to explain why large U.S. companies have come to endorse <laughs> comprehensive legislation in some contexts. You know what I mean? And so it's true. You could sort of be cynical and say, you know, this is going to be just fine for the household name technology companies, but and no one's ever going to compete with them. Now, I have to dig in deeper, but oftentimes these kinds of restrictions only arise when you reach a certain size. And I don't, I, I, I just honestly talking to you right this moment, I, I haven't looked deeply enough into whether that's true here, but some of the proposals in the U.S. are only triggered by whether you have a certain user base or certain amount of, of, of data or a certain amount of um, capitalization. So there is, there is a way to mitigate that concern. But, you know, I, so, so I, I would be highly skeptical of people who just say in a kind of open-ended way, this is going to hurt industries, it's going to hurt innovation. Like, I'm very skeptical of that. But I'm sympathetic to the kinds of arguments that say this is going to make it harder for people to compete with Google and Microsoft and Facebook. And I'm also sympathetic to the people that will argue if they haven't already, because they've argued this about GDPR, that if Europe is selective in its enforcement, then this could wind up being um, an anti-competitive measure in, in the sense that if Europe is, is imposing these obligations on American companies, but letting European companies get a pass, right, that that could be a sh an issue too. And people have made that claim about European privacy law in the past. So it's a good place to uh, switch our attention to the U.S. and in particular to the Federal Trade Commission, which uh, this week published a blog post on uh, aiming for truth, fairness, and equity in your company's use of AI, which follows signals from the acting FTC chair, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, who seems to be much more interested in pursuing AI-related enforcement priorities in the coming years. Um, tell us, what, what, what excited you? Uh, I reached out to you after I saw you sort of enthusiastically tweeting about this, this blog post. What excited you about it? At one level, you look at a blog post from the FTC and, and you just say to yourself, okay, here the FTC is telling you that, you know, gosh, you shouldn't sell racist algorithms or you, you, know, you, ought, to, you ought to take this and that to account and that into account. It's a blog post. It's written not by the commissioner, not by, not by the chairwoman or the acting chairwoman, but, but by a staff attorney. And, you, and you, say, you might say to yourself, like, so what? But actually, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And it, and it, and it matters especially that it was a rank-and-file staff attorney, albeit a very sophisticated, long-standing um, privacy attorney at, at the FTC, because <laughs> they don't write things, public-facing things, willy-nilly. They, on, they only do it, they've gotten the, the, the sign-off, because it would be career-ending to go rogue, right? And so to see a, a staff attorney at the Federal Trade Commission say things like, hey, we have this unfair and deception authority under the FTC Act, and it would apply. Not it might apply, not it, it would apply to things like selling racist algorithms, you know, or, 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 or algorithms that have, um, I have to look at the blog post itself again to see exactly how she framed it. Um, very specific language about the kinds of things that would violate the FTC Act talking about exaggerating the ability of, FTI, of, of AI to do what it says, because, you know, one of my pet peeves has been, um, and gosh, I've, I've talked to the, chair, to the chairwoman about this in the past, but one of my pet peeves has been the way in which, you know, if, if, you, if you fudge anything in like the, in like the dietary supplement world or, or something like that, like if you make a, if you make a false claim or, a, or an unsupported claim, um, in, in, in many different contexts, you could find yourself on the, on the, on the receiving end of, a, of an investigation and an enforcement by the FTC for, for misleading cons consumers, and, and that's the deception component of it. But people make outlandish claims about the power of AI. And so this is a shot across the bat. It's to say you can't make outlandish, unsupported claims about your AI. That is a big deal. Because if they started to bring cases like they do in, in, in unfair and, in, 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 I'm sorry, in deceptive advertising against AI, like, wow, that would just change the whole marketplace because you couldn't just make up stuff about how AI, AI works all the time. So to say, you know, racist algorithms, selling racist algorithms 
lying about or, or exaggerating how much AI, you know, can do, that all these things, that the FTC is paying attention to them and that they consider them to be unfair and deceptive practices, that's a big deal. Every, every in-house counsel at these companies, every outside counsel that they use are paying attention to that. It, it, it's, it's hard to explain because it looks like it's just a random blog post by a staff attorney about a topic. You know, and especially if you if you couple it as you did Justin just now, with the kinds of claims that the that the commissioners themselves are making, who by the way, under a Biden administration, an independent commission like the FTC can have three of five be progressives. And so you've got Lena Khan coming in, you have the, the chairwoman uh, making statements about scrutinizing AI, you have other um, and you also have, you know, conservative members who recognize that there are real harms here. Like, I mean, I think that um, my conversation with one of the conservative um, appointees, who, whom I've known for a long time because we went to school together, suggested to me that he also was taking this thing conservative really seriously. So if you combine those things together, this blog post is a big deal. So there are three laws mentioned specifically. There's uh, Section 5 of the FTC Act, which prohibits unfair or deceptive practices. The Fair Credit Reporting Act, which you know comes into play particularly around when people are denied employment or housing or credit or insurance, and then the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which of course uh, is applicable particularly when there's uh, discrimination on the basis of of race or color or religion or other other uh, factors. Do you think we're going to see a kind of cascade of, of enforcement actions? And uh, in effect, you know, is this uh, the FTC saying, you know, buckle up? Yes, I do. I do. I, I think I think there's going to be. I think it's going to be harder to to, to merge and acquire uh, under this under this FTC and, and and Department of Justice. I think we're going to see more enforcement activity in the in the AI space. Um, I think we're going to potentially see more boundary pushing interpretations of Section Five on unfairness and deception. You know, the reason that those authorities are listed is of course because they those are three statutes that Congress has charged the FTC with enforcement of, right? But the most dangerous one for a company is, in, in many ways, is the FTC Act Section 5 because it's such a free-ranging authority, right? But the other ones can carry with them additional penalty-making power. You know, the FTC, this is a little bit too much in the weeds, but the commission's powers under the FTC Act, their jurisdiction and the scope of the FTC Act is, of, of, the, of Section 5 is very broad. And it really ought to be up to the commission what is unfair and deceptive. And in fact, it's a bit of an oddity in administrative law that the courts don't defer more to the FTC's interpretation of Section 5. Um, but that's a, for another day. That said, the FTC Act and subsequent uh, amendments and internal procedures require the FTC to take a certain series of steps. Um, and ultimately they can only bring to bear fees and penalties. They either get a consent decree that's been violated or they wind up going to going to court. I mean, their, their, their principles are initially equitable and then they get to, you know, whereas with these, some of these other things that they enforce, they actually have penalty authority. Do you see what I mean? And so while, this, while the question may be much narrower because we have to look to exactly what these laws are prohibiting, the consequences of violating those laws, as interpreted by the FTC, could be much greater and more immediate. Um, but anyway, taken together, the FTC is signaling, we have a number of ways to get at this, <laughs> and we will use them all, potentially. And, and this language of hold yourself accountable or be ready for the FTC to do it for you, you know, gosh, I mean, where was that language in the late 1990s when we were talking about about privacy, you know, in the days of, 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 of self-regulation. I mean, th this is like, get your act together or you, you will be facing consequences. The other things to look for are how much, ultimate, ultimately all agencies, including the FTC, with a couple of exceptions in the constitution, are really creatures of, of Congress. And so, you know, it's Congress that will have to act here. The FTC could do a lot more if it, if it knew for certain that it had, you know, the legislative wins at its, at its sales. So, so Congress could give the FTC more budget, let them hire more people. It, I think Congress can and should undo the 
1990s Gingrich era cost-benefit analysis that has been tacked on to the unfairness prong of the FTC Act. I know that's a little bit sort of wonky, but the, 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 the basic idea is that once upon a time, the FTC was able to make unfairness determinations on the base of kind of moral principles and, and public policy and say something was unfair because it violated public policy or was immoral. And that was the original understanding of unfair. The word unfair obviously means not fair, right? Um, it's moral, it's normative. But then a perception that they were overdoing it or, 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 or putting too much pressure on industry um, led to initially a self-limitation by the agency where it, it declared that it would do a cost-benefit analysis before bringing unfairness and that public policy purely could not be a basis for unfairness authority. And later that was uh, codified, which someone on Twitter reminded me of. I had actually forgotten that. But it was codified by Congress in the 1990s during the Gingrich years. We could undo that. You know, I mean, Congress could undo that. And, and undoing that would embolden the agency to, to be much more assertive and aggressive about what constitutes unfairness, right? And so there's the political will within the commission. There is the capacity because of the different acts that, have, that, that they're in charge of enforcing. But a perfect storm, right, would involve some signal from Congress that they, that they want the, the commission to do more. And we got that signal in some ways through the Senate Commerce hearing the other day, which was avowedly about COVID scams, but really like dr dramatized how, how interested Congress is in the FTC taking a more active role to protect consumers. So more of that will, will that's the perfect storm right there. Last question for you. Clearly you're enthusiastic about the FTC being you know, more aggressive. Uh, do you think the US needs uh, a proposed regulation similar to what the EU has just put forward or does the U.S. have all the pieces it needs to, to take action on these issues? The U.S. does not have all the pieces it needs, but nor do I think there's going to be the appetite for the kind of comprehensive regulation we see in Europe. I referenced at the beginning, at the outset, uh, an AI policy roadmap that I wrote years ago. And in it, I talked about some of the ways that U.S. law is outdated in light of AI. You know, the standard law and technology move is to talk about the new affordances of an, of an emerging technology and, and, and what assumptions of law and policy no longer obtain. And there are a number of them. Um, for example, it seems to me that often the way that companies are held accountable for disparate impacts of their technologies on, on racial or racialized, you know, groups or the way that safety problems or, or even like the emission scandal, like avoidance of regulation problems, the way, the way these things emerge is because there are more impartial researchers out there who, 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 are, who, are, who are looking into the practices. So they're journalists or they are researchers in the academy or they are nonprofits. And yeah, they all have their, their motivations and they all have their vantage points. You know, but these are these are third parties who are who are kicking the tires on systems and saying these are unsafe, these are racist or or have a race, racist impact, and so on. And so one of the things that U.S. law needs to do is to make absolutely clear that that kind of investigatory technical work is protected and cannot be the basis of a cease and desist letter or a lawsuit under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, for example. That's just one concrete example. I could give you seven more. There are ways in which U.S. law needs to change in light of AI and in light of the that would improve the ecosystem. But I cannot imagine that we would have the appetite for something like what Europe did. I mean, it's just it's just or or, or purports or will do or intends to do. It's just not in our in our DNA here in a way, you know. Well, we'll have two separate experiments going on with how AI uh, develops as a technology and how it interacts with society. Brian Kalo, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Justin. The 2020 U.S. election was like no other from beginning to end. Ahead of the vote, 
the Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, and the disinformation detection firm Graphica teamed up to create the Election Integrity Partnership. With the aim of defending the 2020 election against voting-related disinformation, the partnership sought to bridge the gap between government and civil society and strengthen platform standards for combating election-related misinformation. Kate Starber is an associate professor in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering and director of the Emerging Capacities of Mass Participation Laboratory and a co-founder of the University of Washington's Center for an Informed Public, which formed in 2019 around a shared mission of resisting strategic misinformation, promoting an informed society, and strengthening democratic discourse. Renee DiResta is the research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. She investigates the spread of malign narratives across social networks and assists policymakers in understanding and responding to the problem. She's advised Congress, the State Department, and other academic, civic, and business organizations, and has studied disinformation and computational propaganda in the context of pseudoscience, conspiracies, terrorism, and state-sponsored information warfare. I spoke to Renee and Kate early this month about how the partnership worked, what they observed during the campaign, the events of January 6th, and what must be done to confront disinformation going forward. A lot of the fraud claims that you all were both dealing with in 2020 they were seeded long ago. These ideas were seeded long ago. These are narratives that have existed uh, in some cases for decades, and they're just sort of rehashed and reused in many different ways. How would you describe that trajectory and and the way that it manifested itself in this particular cycle? And maybe, Kate, I'll start with you. I don't know if I have a perfect answer for this. Um, I guess the way I conceptualize it is there's almost like two forces converged at the same time in this election. And one is like this sort of historical effort in the US largely on the right to claim that that fraud is widespread in order to motivate voter suppression kinds of laws, voter ID kinds of things and these things. And this has actually been a strategy that's been happening pretty acutely for a little while, but possibly for longer. And I, I don't necessarily have the history of that, but my understanding is that this has sort of been a, stra- a political strategy on, on the right uh, in, in the US for some time. And I think that hit up against kind of separate thing that's going on, which is, you know, a disinformation effort. We saw it in 2016, kind of hint, hints of it in 2016, but certainly in 2020, with a, a top-down disinformation effort in large part perpetrated by the, the US president himself to claim that, that voter fraud was happening uh, in a way to sort of insulate himself from a loss the first time, and the second time actually to question the results and to actually try to, to, to disrupt the democratic process in the United States. And in 2016, we know it was a little bit supported by Russia. Certainly we know that their efforts in the, some of their online, Renee probably knows more about this than I do, but some of their efforts were um, to push the voter fraud claims before the 2016 election. And we see those same narratives begin to, to get spread again, starting in June, July of 2020. Um, and we, we saw them in 2018 as well. So it's become these two forces. One is sort of like a voter suppression strategy. And another one is hitting up against a disinformation strategy that really strikes the foundations of democracy, which undermines our trust in the elections themselves. I think what I would add to that is there's also the um, shift in the actor types a little bit this year. I think everyone was looking for disinformation from foreign sources. And really overwhelmingly, it came from domestic actors that were incentivized, which was a progression that we'd seen happening. Um, It was also, I think, a function of the reaction over that four-year period between 2016 and 2020 was really to think through what foreign interference looked like, to come up with taxonomies like coordinated and authentic behavior, to come up with moderation structures designed to minimize coordinated inauthentic behavior, and infrastructure within the the platforms themselves for detecting it. And so there was a, a lot of work done in the intervening four years to take down networks quite aggressively and often in their formative stages to minimize the ability of, of bad actors from the outside to grow these communities and networks. But much of the policies and infrastructure put in place to do that work relied on notions of inauthenticity. And so that work did not necessarily translate to quite authentic, extremely overt domestic activities that began to happen on the Democratic side, even during the primary, where we started to see some of the same dynamics um, that, that you know, continued to play out in the general allegations of fraud, uh, you actually saw some of those narratives emerge in the Democratic candidate um, support pools online, what I call the factions, uh, really early on during the primary allegations that Keith Buttigieg had a 
you know, a sock puppet army and these sorts of like claims that, that began to percolate that were very evocative of what we had seen from 2016, uh, but now articulated by domestic actors and the platforms all of a sudden forced to confront the fact that that this was widely perceived as freedom of expression, widely perceived as political speech and a lot of questions about what to do about that. And those, I think, are the questions that really um, stay with us going forward into the next election cycle as well. Hey, were there specific studies or, or data or research that you had done that, I don't know, trends that were animating the data that you knew or you, you, you had pattern recognition on from prior work? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. I think at the on the UW side, what we had were a few teams, we actually split up into sub teams within our own group with methodological experience on analyzing, analyzing disinformation cascades, you know, you know, understanding provenance, looking at how things spread, network graphing, temporal graphing, doing some basic, um, you know, topic modeling, this kind of thing. So we had these kind of, and we had contextual knowledge. Each team had at least one contextual expert and some methodological expertise. So we kind of distributed across these teams. And interestingly enough, I think, so we had the background of having done this in other contexts. We had a couple of people that had been working with COVID. We had a couple of people who had even, you know, history in some other contexts with disinformation. And then we had this guy, Mike Caulfield, who's amazing. Um, And he actually had this contextual expertise having been, a political organizer 10 plus years ago and seen these narratives rise up in other elections where, over and over again. So he already, kind of, he was telling us, oh, we're going to see this. We're going to see this. We're going to see the affidavits getting filed. We're going to see this. So he was like in our, and he was on, um, he was on my team. I think we're team C. He, he was surfacing this, this stuff. And, and so we had like a, an in-house expert on that. But I think when we look across, we had 120 people total across the different projects. And so we had a, a variety of different kinds of expertise and we had this ability to to monitor in real time, which created this great resource in the moment and in the, you know, and still today, because we had this resource of, of information gathering of this very ephemeral data in the moment by, by researchers and sort of capturing, you know, uh, more, hundreds of different misinformation, disinformation incidents related to the election. And that was really valuable. And then just some, you know, some, some of our own con- background of having done research in this space and kind of seeing the techniques evolve over this time. Um, as Renee said earlier, I think the most interesting thing is we we started out with this idea we'd probably be seeing a lot of like covert action, inauthentic accounts. And what we ended up seeing was like blue check verified accounts, exactly who they say they are, spreading BS constantly. And it often it looks like, you know, it didn't matter if they believed it or not. Sometimes it looks like they believe the stuff. Other times they're like big, if true, and, and, and spreading this stuff. And, and most of their behavior was just like combing the internet, trying to find examples of voter fraud so they could pass off this exaggerated notion of massive voter fraud. And, um, and it didn't just start on election day. It started in June and was really already hot and active by September um, with folks very motivated to, to continue to just highlight every inconsistency or every little error to develop this sort of meta narrative of massive voter fraud. We were also kind of wondering about that question of the the relationship between traditional media, social media, you know, and and the extent to which false claims on on traditional media drove some of that activity as well. And Kate, I know you looked at that stuff specifically, um, so I don't know if you want to take that question. So pulling from some of our early, some of our early like pre-election things that we saw, there was good communication out to journalists, I, and I think a lot of journalists, especially at the national level, they were like, okay, we can't, you know. Every time a, a ballot gets stolen from a mailbox, we don't need to be highlighting this because it's just going to feed into these narratives. But there were a lot of local media that would, you know, cover a, an event. And sometimes they would just cover it like three ballots stolen from a mailbox, but the ballots were found or whatever. And they would cover it in a, in a kind of a straight news way. And then these hyper-partisan media outlets, especially on the right, sometimes on the left, depending on the narrative, it was related to the USPS the, the, or the US uh, Postal Service. The left was claiming the postal service was was purposefully slowing down the mail-in ballot. So there were some some misleading narratives that came in on the left, but on, most of it was on the right. These hyperpartisan news outlets would pick up every incident that appeared in a local media outlet and then frame it as intentional democratic voter fraud, as opposed to some random person stole stole some mail and it happened to have a ballot in it, which is what really happened. And so we saw this interplay with with local media giving sort of a straight news. And, and then that getting picked up, reframed by hyperpartisan media, um, and then those hyperpartisan media outlets are pretty small. But then it would percolate up through d- various influencers into more mainstream cable news or or other kinds of news outlets with larger audiences. So we saw this kind of 
interplay across across the media ecosystem um, with both sort of top-down narratives sometimes, but a lot of times the narratives would start at the bottom with these kind of random actors and then slowly make its way up through through various influencers into you know Donald Trump's account or his son's accounts or or um, into the the cable news shows, the nighttime cable news shows. Was that the plan? Do you think that they intended to to do it that way? I don't know if someone sits down and says, "Okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do that." I think it's the dynamics. I think a lot of it is emergent. Um, it relies on these dynamics. There, there may be some, you know, some folks in there doing some coordination, like explicit coordination, but a lot of the coordination that I perceive in this space is more implicit for people mm -hmm. kind of following each other and passing things along and watching each other. Um, maybe there's DMs happening that we can't see. We can assume that's happening, but I don't know if they're like sitting in a room and be like, this is our strategy. I think it, it's a little bit more um, dynamic than that. Renee may have a different opinion though. We used to see... Back in 2015, 2016, I remember like even in the anti-vaxxer stuff that I, you know, that I worked on, there were Facebook groups called Tweet for Vaccine Freedom and people would go in there and they would throw their handle in and they would wait for like, this is what you were told to tweet on this day at this time. There were, um, there was a group that was putting out like YouTube videos with like, here's the memes of the day and here's what you're going to say and here's the, here's the content you're going to go for. Uh, in the context of the political campaign, there was like, um, you know, you may have seen coverage of like MAGA 3X or like microchips work, you know, those sort of canonical troll campaigns where it was highly, highly coordinated. And that stuff all leaked, right? Eventually that kind of stuff, you know, in the anti-vax case, like we found those groups, they were, they were, we were doing opposition research, we found them and we were like, well, hey, we're going to check out what's happening in here, you know? And then with microchip and that sort of thing, like investigative journalists found them and wrote about, you know, wrote about them. You don't see that happening so much anymore. So either everybody's really dramatically improved their OPSEC, like, or um, it's much less uh, like explicitly coordinated. I saw a couple of things early on in a discord, again, during the primary, I was in a Bernie discord and, um, and they wanted to amplify actually funny enough, a local San Francisco candidate, um, Shahid, like on his last name, Batar maybe. And they wanted to see if they could get Shahid trending. They decided that they were going to um, come up with a hashtag that was like anti-Pelosi pro-Shahid. And so they came up with both. And they originally had them kind of like married. And this was actually in the Discord. It was like, on this day, at noon, at this time, we're going to tweet. And I was like, oh, here's that coordination again. Okay. And so then my team went and we sat there with like Twitter trending and we just watched it climb. We just watched the volume. We wanted to see if they could do it. We wanted to see if they could make it happen. And it turned out that they could. But what was really fascinating about the dynamic was that as they had this like pro-Shahid, anti-Pelosi, um, he was challenging her in the primary, I think, narrative that was coming up, what you saw was as it broke into that kind of top 10, all of a sudden a bunch of right-wing accounts were like, oh, hey, here's an F Pelosi, like hashtag, <laughs> let's jump on that. And so all of a sudden it entirely stopped being about Shahid, like the, the kind of like, um, lefty, you know, Rosen bio Twitter that was really trying to amp up the Shahid thing was almost entirely, it was just completely taken over and it did become a number one trend, but it became a number one trend because Charlie Kirk and the usual right-wing suspects got in and just gave it that lift. And so it was interesting to me to see the way in which it, it did start out as a deliberate coordination attempt. It did make its way through this, you know, from Discord to Twitter and these accounts that came in to, um, you know, to really promote it. And then the way that it was uh, was kind of commandeered, there were times when you would see the hashtag would be kind of taken over by the people who were trying to do the correction, almost like an autoimmune response that they would, in fact, you know, there was, I definitely saw this with some of the QAnon stuff, um, something about, you know, Oprah trending because there was some QAnon conspiracy. It started off as like, let's make Oprah trend because of this QAnon conspiracy. But then everybody else goes and looks and says, why is Oprah trending? And then the trend becomes, why is Oprah trending? And so it becomes almost like a, Meta dynamic. I think Twitter kind of got a handle on that sometime during the election cycle because it stopped happening. It was a, definitely a thing that during the primary was uh, was recurring over and over again. I'm also really curious about the extent to which these things are deliberately coordinated now versus just uh, everyone you know. understands how it works. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I would say one thing that was interesting from the campaign side that fed into it really well and seemed pretty well designed was this idea of an army for Trump. Uh, and they sent out advertisements about it. You could sign up. And what it's basically telling folks to do is when they went to the polls to take pictures and gather evidence of anything that might go wrong. Uh, and basically what they were doing was just gathering all the evidence that they might be able to somehow put together 
to support this conspiracy theory of voter fraud. Um, the left interpreted it as they were going to be violent at the polls. Uh, and so they kind of, you know, and we, we were like, well, don't, don't frame it like that because that's actually going to serve as voter suppression. These folks aren't coming armed this time. They're actually going to go take these photographs and gather the, the documentation for their voter fraud campaign. And so that you could see that they were they were actually trying to 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 crowdsource this this uh, this collection of data on and eventually they even crowdsourced the development of these narratives um, that they would then when they saw a good one, they would then, you know, highlight it and promote it and amplify it and feed it into their meta narrative of voter fraud. They came armed with smartphones. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the both you've worked quite a lot with uh, data uh, that you've you've obviously taken from the platforms. You know, uh, Kate, in particular, the, the visualizations uh, from your team are always so amazing. You know, it just uh, really help people to understand, I think, conceptually what's happening. Can you talk a little bit about how the platforms have contributed data or, or how it's kind of changed our understanding of these dynamics? And what are some of the limitations in the data that you have access to and that, you know, you'd like to address? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a great question because we know so much about what's going on on Twitter. And Twitter is such a small part of the information ecosystem. And we can try to extrapolate out or generalize or say, look, we can see where Twitter fits in with other platforms, but we don't, we don't have a great view of other platforms. Facebook, we now have some ability to see public pages. That's a, that's a good signal. We, we were definitely using CrowdTangle, and it, which has some access to Facebook data, um, but we don't have the private groups. And that's where, you know, that's where the most interesting stuff probably around coordination for sure is happening. And I know Renee knows a lot more about that than I do because she, she's actually been in some of those groups as part of her research. We tried to spin out with other data. We had Google data we were collecting just to kind of see search results from different locations. Renee's group was collecting parlor data. We were sharing across across groups as well, but and then relying on other tools like Junkopedia and others that give you, that can that, that you can use to access uh, data on different platforms. But there really there really is a, a limitation because there's so much interesting stuff Instagram, Facebook on the stuff that's actually spreading through this through the groups and through individual accounts. And we can't see it, and we can only kind of like infer from our real time the monitoring that people are doing and seeing their own accounts. Or someone would send us a picture of their, what they saw in, in their feeds, and that's a very rough signal compared to what we have with Twitter. We have all this data; we can visualize it, we can network graph, and and, and all the other a lot of the other platforms. It's a much murkier picture that we have just because we don't have as as quality data. But for in some cases, good reason, um, privacy reasons, and others. In other cases, not as good reason, and certainly YouTube, like. <laughs> We can we can see that YouTube is a huge problem because you could perceive that from the view of Twitter, but we actually can't we can't really collect on YouTube. Every time we try, we run into a rate limit after, you know, after <laughs> just barely scratching the surface of whatever we want to look at. I just want to kind of focus in just a little bit on this relationship, though, between um, different platforms and and traditional media to some extent, because you you get you got kind of tantalizingly close to seeing that relationship, um, and I feel like that's kind of a I don't know, a bit of a holy grail. Like, can we can we ever get to the point where this entire public sphere is legible to us? You know, we can see the interaction between how media works on the one hand and how that drives narratives on social and how politicians, you know, insert, you know, their their influence and you know, the way it all kind of bubbles back around, you know, in a cycle. What do you think we need to do to get to that kind of, I don't know, uh, overall uh, overview understanding of the public sphere? Well, I think that there's a couple different things there, right? So first of all, most broadcast media uses social media as a distribution channel, right? So it's it, the idea that they're like wholly separate, I don't think is true anymore. And what I mean by that is like, I, you know, I don't have, actually, I do technically have a television now <laughs> since we moved, but but I uh, I don't have like cable, I don't have a cable account or whatever. Um, and so the only time I ever see anything from Tucker Carlson is when it hits Twitter, right? And so... Um, but a lot of it hits Twitter, it turns out. A lot of these things get clipped. A lot of these things get shared. Um, so they're posted to YouTube. There's a handy you know, title, usually the show date, et cetera, et cetera, in the YouTube. Like, there's a lot more visibility, I think, into what's happening on a, on a broadcast channel and in the way that it appears on social. And you can either track that based on keywords or title, perhaps, or you can trace the URL you know, with certain types of capabilities. You could perhaps look and see where that, um, where that visual is appearing on BitChute and Rumble and the kind of range of sub-platforms as well. With CrowdTangle, we have meme search. So you actually can look and see if an image uh, is appearing. So, you know, and it'll OCR into the image too. So if you want to find text within an image, 
Um, you can, in fact, do that and see things across uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube using that particular tool. At SIO, you know, we are trying to build more tooling for understanding those dynamics. We're doing more work on COVID right now in particular. And one of the key questions is um, how do we expand beyond hashtags and URLs to have a better sense of not only what narratives are going viral, but what communities they're reaching. I think this is one of the key actual gaps in the access to the data that we that we do have. Just the I, some of the questions around um, where, you know, I think that there is still a lot of emphasis on describing information disorder in terms of net number of engagements um, that a particular piece of content has. And I think that, that that provides one type of visibility into something that happens, maybe a relative prevalence. But one of the things we see with COVID in particular is, you know, you should expect to see anti-vax content in anti-vax communities and anti-vax pages, right? That, that is a thing where you expect to see that happen. You expect, given the, you know, you expect to see a certain degree of engagement rate with that audience on that content. Um, and so sometimes that gets reported in the press, actually, as like there's hundreds of thousands of engagements with this content. Yes, but it's also kind of like preaching to the choir. And so having that understanding of what has left the echo chamber and actually is like on its way to reaching the mainstream and sort of the path by which things break out of particular chambers or how they hop across communities, I think is uh, kind of one of the areas where a lot of the data that we have will, will give us engagements. It'll, but it, but it, it's not necessarily, you have to really do a lot of work to piece together um, some of those pathways once you get outside of just looking at how something went viral on Twitter. And so I think that's, that's kind of one of our, you know, challenge areas for understanding that. So saying right-wing communities sharing a right-wing conspiracy theory is not all that remarkable. The question is, does it, is Affect it the is broader it network? Middle? Yeah. It, Kate can, uh, because some of your visualizations, I feel like I've got to this a little bit and I I'm remembering, some some work you did where you went back and and re-identified IRA accounts in a Twitter data set that you had looked at, and I also feel like I have a memory of um, your re-identification of QAnon accounts inside of um, a broader network of Twitter data that you had looked at um, once Twitter had gone and taken them down because it had identified them as QAnon accounts. You know, that kind of gets close, I guess, to a little bit to understanding how. Maybe, for instance, QAnon played a role or, or nested itself inside the broader, you know, set of accounts that were pushing these false narratives. Um, I don't know if that's a question in what I just said, but um, <laughs> certainly we've, we've used a lot of yeah network graphing techniques, both to understand what's going on and also to communicate it. Yeah, we did use a similar technique. The first one, we were actually studying something completely different. We were we were looking at discourse around Black Lives Matter in 2016 with a separate project. And later went back and when the when Twitter released the names of the IRA accounts, we mapped those onto that conversation and actually found it both in the pro the pro Black Lives Matter discourse and the anti Black Lives Matter discourse, which we now know was part of the IRA strategy. But we didn't at the time. We, we just had the list of, of accounts and we we mapped them on. Similar thing with the this other one. We were looking at the conversation around voter frauds. So we had a network graph. Um, which was all of the sort of influencer, influential accounts in the voter fraud conversation. And then we just mapped the ones that had disappeared um, when Twitter did a big takedown. It wasn't just QAnon accounts. They took down a, a large number of accounts to, to do that. Um, but certainly when we look at our network graph and do some community analysis, uh, the QAnon piece of that got really rocked. Um, but some accounts disappeared in the in the more mainstream right, and some accounts disappeared uh, on the left as well during that takedown. So they they must have used some other property rather than just um, having tweeted about QAnon in the past. So so yeah, we used techniques like that again, limited by the fact that we're only looking at Twitter, but it can see you know it gives you a sense of things that might be happening elsewhere. Um, but again, because we have this sort of more complete Twitter data, we're constantly sucking in Twitter data. We're just streaming it in all the time. We have this huge COVID set we've been collecting since January 2020. And then we can use that to look at, you know, what are the structural relationships of different communities? And then where does that link up with the voter fraud? You know, the folks talking about voter fraud or where does that link up with, you know, anti-vax, you know, where are the anti-vax communities within that? And how are they connecting to other communities within the COVID conversation? So we do use those those techniques a lot. And I think um, there's a lot of room for thinking about similar techniques on other platforms based on less <laughs> less good data. Um, 
and also tracking things across platforms. I think there's a lot of methodological innovation that could happen. I don't think we're going to be able to perfectly fill in the whole picture, but I think there's some methodological work we could do to, to make that blurriness less blurry on some of those other platforms um, and, and, and begin to do some, some similar things of like the community analysis that Renee is talking about that I think would be really interesting. Yeah, we just had this hearing in the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, some of these conversations were discussed. There was, you know, quite a lot around extremism, disinformation, um, a bit on voter fraud, disinformation. They spent less time on that, I think, than we might have expected. You know, there seemed to be a better understanding among lawmakers of uh, some of these dynamics. Um, they asked some smart questions. Do you think we've kind of entered a different phase in this conversation about these phenomena? Do you think that there are things that we now understand about the dynamics on these platforms that, that do need to be addressed? So I did, um, I did a briefing for the committee um, ahead, about a week, week ahead, I think, of, of the hearing. And um, one thing that was really remarkable, everybody was very prepared. You know, everybody uh, asked questions. That really, the focus of the questions for me were not, um, you know, it was very meticulous, um, kind of precise, perhaps I should say, questioning related to how does this algorithm work? What is the structure by which this happens? How does a recommendation engine function? You know, you know we got into collaborative filtering versus you know content-based filtering, right? You know, um, it was uh, myself, um, you know, a few of the other professors on the call were computer scientists talking about YouTube recommendation mechanics with kind of peer-reviewed research, also. So it was much less of like a, a broad we are going to take the low hanging fruit pot shot at, you know, um, whatever platform grievance is most relevant to our base. Um, and instead it was much more of a, it was, it was in some ways a very boring hearing, which is great because it was very boring because it was very focused on these very precise mechanisms, um, you know, to try to get the, the, uh, the CEOs answering questions about specific mechanics driving some of the social, uh, you know, social situations and social harms that are, uh, you know, kind of top of the public mind. Among the Republican caucus on the um, committee, there are a lot of questions related to child exploitation and child harms. That was very new. That was very different. Uh, previously, the, you know, the questions have much more been about um, allegations of, of speech and censorship and, you know, things that really have no bearing, no, no ties to real world research, as opposed to this time they did go for something like uh, impact of social media on children, um, rise of, you know, kind of decline in uh, positive mental health and, and other things, uh, you know, kind of tied to Jonathan Haidt's work and things like that. And so it was a very well-informed hearing, I thought, as far as, um, as far as where we were going. So what does that mean? Um, well, you know, <laughs> uh, you might argue that rather than public hearings, you know, there, there'd be kind of time better spent, like actually sitting there drafting legislation, I think at this point, but you know, I think that there is something to be said for holding, you know, holding the CEOs to account and, you know, making them account for themselves to the public. I would just like to see, I think, a little bit more in the way of uh, sort of manifestation of, uh, of actual regulatory conversation that, um, that resulted. I'm going to ask a cup, just a question about January 6th and um, your reactions to that after having studied, you know, the disinformation piece of this on through election day and then after do you, do you felt you you saw it coming? Do you feel like there are data you'd still like to to have about that phenomenon on some level? You know, if you had subpoena power and you could ask the platforms for for data uh, around it, what would you ask for? So January sixth. I remember my reaction. I was sitting on my cat. We're all sitting not very far from where we are now, or most of us were. So we haven't moved around much. But I'm sitting right there, um, uh, watching the television as it was as it was kind of unfolding and I was sitting next to my partner and she was just like shocked and horribly upset and just like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And I remember being like, this isn't surprising to me yeah. at all, at all. Not that I would have predicted. I don't think that that's true. Although we had kind of been worried about violence manifesting. Um, and there was so much uncertainty on election night that it was it was difficult for anyone to know who was supposed to be violent, uh, who was who was mad. Um, had the election results been more clear, we might have seen more violence on that night. But so it, it was kind of diffuse and long. Kind of you know it took this this time. But but I wasn't I wasn't surprised. And and in fact you know I even as it was happening, the, all of the characters we call characters, but I I've been thinking about them as caricatures of people that these online profiles that just like 
that's not a real person. That's a caricature of a person because they're so partisan and they're dressed up in all these symbols and they've got the flag or they've got their weird frogs or their, you know, three percenter symbol, whatever it is, all, all these things and, and their Trump logos and all this stuff on, on their profiles, like literally come alive. It was these social media caricatures, like come alive in person. They are real people. They're actually dressed up now in these symbols and they were perpetrating violence at the heart of, of the U.S. democracy or the U.S. democratic uh, process. And it was horrifying, but not surprising uh, after having done that research. Is there more you'd still like to know about it? Uh, the thing I want, I don't know if Renee would say the same thing. I mean, certainly YouTube data, uh, and just to kind of see some of that, I don't even know what I would want about it because we don't have enough of it to know what would, what would be cool. But the uh, Facebook private groups and to understand how content was spreading from there to larger populations and to get a sense of like how, how many people and not just starting that day, but we should start to think back over a longer period of time to, to look at, you know, how, how people have become sort of radicalized and into, into believing really alternative realities that are grievance, grievance based realities that are, that are able to motivate people to do really um, frightening things. So our team, um, you know, we have Parler API and we've been ingesting on Parler for a while. A little different. You can't really just do a steady stream because of certain um, sort of a primitive kind of <laughs> function. But we had seen a lot of the rhetoric, but there's always that kind of rhetoric. Right. And so I think Justin, you and I, had, you know, chatted about it in a um, like a group of, you know, researcher friends. Right. And and. And there was a lot of back and forth, like, do we think this is actually going to be violent? And my thought was that it'd look more like the kind of street violence, like there would be the Antifa versus, you know, Trumpers, there'd be some street conflict, there'd be some like flipped over cars and whatnot, like the, the kind of stuff that, um, you know, that we've sadly kind of, you know, seen in many places around, uh, you know, around, around elections and other issues in the US. I don't think the storming of the Capitol, I don't think was quite so overtly um, you know, there's some bravado language around it that was overt on Parler. But again, I, I, that kind of stuff, I don't think was really um, out there in quite the same, you know, quite the same volume. I had kept the day clear thinking that there would be some skirmishes. Interestingly, there was an anti-vaccine protest that was happening that day too. Like what we kind of joked around about it being like a side stage, you know, like at a music festival, like this is the main event, but then there are these other people over here and they're trying to take advantage of this crowd. And so I was very curious actually about, you know, we had um, folks on our team were watching the anti-vaccine stream um, because we were curious to see to what extent they were going to be able to pull in uh, critical mass from the big MAGA protest that was happening um, related to specifically not getting yourself vaccinated from COVID. So we, so we had that kind of research going on. I was... Which is which is fascinating because you end up seeing two huge influencers in COVID misinformation, one from the Mer America's frontline doctors who was spreading all sorts of BS in around like July, June. And then the producer from the pandemic video, which came out in May, both end up on the property of the Capitol building. Yes. One is arrested later for having been inside. Um, so it happened the other way. The anti-vaxxers got pulled into, into the, into the Capitol, pro Capitol protest, into the insurrection. <laughs> Yeah. And they were, you could, you could hear them. They were talking about like, um, well, our crowd's pretty thin because it looks like everybody is marching <laughs> the Capitol right now. Um, so that, so that dynamic definitely did happen. I think the lawyer for Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s um, organization was out there live streaming uh, in front of the Capitol. But what, as the Capitol thing began to pick up, um, I switched over. I watch, um, I watch Russian state media. Whenever I want to watch a protest, I watch, I watch the Rupley and the RT feeds. Because um, we have some ongoing work looking at how Russian state media reports on American protests and how that ties into some kind of uh, ways in which they used to do that historically and how that how that looks today. And so, um, so I actually watched a roughly live stream of the people breaching the building, which was which was you know I was thinking like my God, this journalist is you know <laughs> um, the I, I felt like it was like just unconcealed, like they couldn't believe it was happening. And the other thing that was interesting um, was the, the live streamer stayed outside. And during the moment when Trump made his speech, somebody ran up as so there's people like banging on the door. It was the guy with the horns, the, uh, the QAnon shaman comes running up saying, Trump wants us to leave. He wants us to leave. And there was this debate among the people at the door about like, 
you know, well, our commander in chief is telling us to leave. And so some of them were really compelled by that. And there were others who were like, well, fuck Trump, I'm an American and this is my house. And, you know, and so you could watch those. I'm watching like this Russian state media live stream of like this guy in a QAnon like horns conveying is absolutely surreal. And I thought like, man, we're really, uh, <laughs> really in some trouble here. I don't think anybody predicted like that dynamic was going to take shape. As far as the uh, more information, though, yeah, the private groups dynamic is really interesting. Something that happened just over the last 48 hours was I've been in a private group for a long time with a number of um, public health experts who just kind of communicate with each other and they're talking about the vaccines and they share in quite frequently URLs from anti-vaccine sites into this private group, um, sharing URLs just to, for you know, situational awareness. And the group got a ding from the Facebook overseers basically saying like, you guys are, you know, all posts have to be approved uh, through this day and you've been sharing too much, um, you know, too much, uh, you know, bad um, COVID information into this group and so on and so forth. And so, and this is a private, sorry, secret, this is a secret group. This isn't even private. No, no one can find this. This is just a secret group. Um, which means that there is some AI moderator somewhere who is trying to get a handle on what's happening in the private and secret groups. Um, I mean, for us, like it's a false positive, unfortunately, but I don't know what that means for the um, for the advocacy community in there. But it really did make me think about what that that kind of visibility uh, into those spaces um, looks like and how the platforms are actioning on it now in ways that they probably were not before the sixth. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for having us. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.